Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Time to regulate AI? Congress hears from technology CEOs at a one-of-a-kind closed-door meeting. We hear from a senator in the room, Todd Young. The real key is making sure the United States and our companies and innovators and investors stay ahead of those in the rest of the world so that we have the innovations to counter any bad effects of the next successive wave of AI. Gen Z, a generation of optimists. Susie Welch on a new poll of 20-somethings. I actually believe in Gen Z. I think that they want to know how to achieve. They want to learn more. Plus, what the looming auto worker strike tells us about the economy. A bitter battle of words. It'll be harder to get into Delta's lounge and taking Arby's to court. They say it's not as big as you thought you said it was. But it's also it's about much. the quality of the meat itself. It's Thursday, September 14th. We have the meats. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by, Joe, in three, two, one. Here's Mike. Here. Good morning. Welcome uh, to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. It's going pretty quickly uh, today. Time yeah. flies when yeah. you're having fun. It is. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's our favorite day, Thursday, because it's close to the weekend, but not too close to Monday. <laughs> I understand the argument for that. I still say Friday Friday's is my favorite day. day. Friday early. Friday, Friday, Friday morning early. once you're here. Friday early. U.S. <laughs> US equity futures. Uh, we love it here. I don't know why it's it's like we crave weekends. Uh, we don't really wish we didn't have weekends at no, all. You want to work really hard during the week and you right. go rest on the weekend. Okay, that's, that's what it is. That, that's what it is. But try doing that when you've been getting up at 3.30 and you can't stay up on Friday night and you can't sleep on Sunday night. How are the treasury yields? <laughs> Good evening, UAW family. Tonight we're going to cover a lot of ground. Let's bring an update now on the looming auto workers strike. UAW President Sean Fain said that last night during a Facebook Live event that the union and automakers remain far apart ahead of, quote, likely strikes. Our goal is not to strike. Our goal is to get an equitable agreement for our members. And if we get there, we'll be fine. If not, then we're going to have to take action. He said the strikes would begin strategically at a limited number of locations, which will be followed by others if required. Now, said an all-out strike is still a possibility. Fan also uh, providing more clarity on where talks stand with each of the big three automakers. Said Ford had offered a 20% raise, followed by GM at 18%, and Stellantis at 17.5%. The union has been pushing for a 40% wage increase. Meantime, uh, a bitter battle of words, because Ford CEO Jim Farley uh, feigns, uh, saying that uh, Fain's accusation that his company's not bargaining seriously, saying... Uh, accusing Fain now of not showing up at the bargaining table. I don't know if you saw all of this, uh, both figuratively and literally at his session on Tuesday. Uh, he was supposed to be there, and uh, apparently Farley walks in the door, and he's not at the table. The first time I even found out that Sean Fain had seen our offer was tonight on Facebook Live when I watched it myself and my team. Um, we're here. We're ready to negotiate. Um, but it's sure hard to negotiate a contract when there's no one to negotiate with. They've been using the UPS workers as uh, mm. kind of their template for what they want to get through. Um, but it doesn't sound so far like the automakers are going to go anywhere near uh, the levels that they're Farley v. v. Fain, I didn't get very optimistic with our interview. No. I think the, the term that, well, competition is just a race to the bottom. I'm, I don't even know what that means, but... Uh, 
it is the way of the world and it's, 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 what, it's what drives profitability and capitalism and everything else is, is competition. And just, I don't know, maybe we just need to subsidize the big three and that's the only way to do it because if we, if it becomes too prohibitively expensive to make cars versus other automakers and Tesla and everything else, that's what's going to happen again. I heard um, this morning some conversation just around the idea that if you see the wages, you know, they were pointing out it's only, I think he, Fain was telling us yesterday, 5 to 8% of, of costs that go into I don't believe the labor. That. Normal math tells you that labor equates to 5 to 8% of the cost of the vehicle. Um, these companies could double wages and not raise prices and still make billions in profits. The problem is, is you have labor down the line. If you look through the supply chain and right. all of those labor, labor uh, payments are gonna be based on what this contract looks like too. All of that feeds into the cost of the vehicle right. over time too. The most depressing thing today is the census. And this isn't the journal, this is the journal talking about the census, that the average worker has lost $4,000 of real income since 2019. Which is why they are asking for gains right, like this right. to try and make up for it. Yeah, but that's the problem is that in, in, inflation eats it away. And in, uh, it, we can't blame all the inflation on, on Joe Biden's policies, obviously, but some of it, some of the spending has to do with that. You, you have these well-intentioned programs where you think Keynesian uh, stimulus or ways of, of uh, transferring wealth to try to help income inequality. You do all these things with the hope that you're going to help the people on the low end. And when it, the, if you connect all the dots to where it leads you, the inflation that can be engendered right, causes the people you're trying to help to be worse off than when you started. But you're not looking at both the counterfactual and the real life experiment. What, what do you mean? That, what if you hadn't done it? Well, no. The, and the real and the separately the real life experiment that we are seeing around the world, which is to say that if, if you look at that $4,000 or $5,000 figure that people are behind in the United States, go talk to the folks in Europe. Go talk to, the, go, go talk to everybody around the world who's been dealing with inflation, runaway inflation. I mean, our inflation it, you know, has been managed probably better, than, well, not even probably. Our inflation has been empirically managed better than, uh, frankly, every other That's country new. Um, around, around the world. That's so, not new. No, but so the point is- And, and neither so, is us outperforming the rest of the world. Right, but to look at to look at the spending piece of it, which, by the way, could have been done better. Nobody, no, I wouldn't think anyone. What if it wasn't done at all? Do you think we'd have this inflation? I think that that's a it's a it's. A, do I think you'd have this inflation? I do. Really? Because because I think it was part of it. I also but. think there's a separate piece, which was, and you, we can look at the Biden administration. We can look at the Trump administration at the time, and we can we can relitigate COVID and and policies and all sorts of things. But the truth was that we needed to help people who, by the way, back then, weren't losing $4,000 uh, a, a year annually by inflation. They were losing $4,000 know, a, a, a month uh, because they didn't have a job it, it, nobody, to go to Nobody that disputes that the first round of COVID uh, stimulus made sense. It's a second, third, fourth, and fifth round that didn't help. Right, this I'm, this I'm, is I'm, a nightmare. More, more voters say they trust Trump than Biden on, on the economy. I saw that. Do you know what it takes for, the, for USA Today? to write that headline. They looked at every possible way to not say that. I guarantee you. Other numbers they could have used. Anything in the world for USA Today not to have to put that in, in print. So what, you, you, what causes that in voters' minds to think that? I honestly don't know. I actually find I know you and Jared Bernstein can't figure out why voters don't know how good they have it under Bidenomics. 
It's not that great. I'm not arguing that it's, it's, it's you know, the panacea. I'm just arguing that on a I'm, relative I'm basis. I'm just arguing that, that well-intentioned, we know a, where well-intentioned path leads us. I, I, what I, but I think it leads you to hurt the people that you're trying to help with all these government programs. It doesn't help. It hurts. Look, we can, do, we can debate this all day. All I'm saying is, and yes, we can debate the, the, the last piece of spending. And then, but then the question well, is, then go on, on a relative the, basis, how much of that was, is, is the, the impact IRA, of inflation the, all and everything these, else? It's, trillion, it's trillions. And it would double the deficit from last year. But I th- do you, know what, you want to know why I think actually people say this? <laughs> no, it, when, I don't When know they look you. at unemployment rates that are this, and, and then they look at their... Because honestly, I think they also... It's because they're making $4,000 less in buying that. power than from four years ago. Not just that. I no. think and, that they, and, and gasoline prices are 70% higher than when well, he took office. Well, that's true. Well, thanks. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying, no, but I'm saying I think the, the, the oil piece of it is, is a big piece and of it. And groceries. And groceries yeah. and all of that. But no, and then I also think they hear this. They hear it over and over and over again. That's how this happens. So they don't, okay. They don't really know that they don't have any money after they buy groceries. They're just hearing it from, from who? Not the mainstream media. No, no. Who are they hearing it from? Me? Well, we must, we need to talk to Nielsen then. (laughs) It's better. Because I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm reaching that many people. Okay. And Delta Airlines is changing how customers can earn elite Frequent flyer status. Starting January 1st, customers will earn Delta medallion status solely based on their spending instead of a combination of dollars spent uh, with the carrier and combined with flights. The new model is similar to the one that American Airlines adopted earlier this year, and the new rules will cut unlimited access to the clubs. That's not nice. For certain American Express card holders, Delta customers will earn one medallion qualifying dollar for every dollar they spend on Delta flights, as well as car rentals, hotels, and vacation packages that are booked uh, through the airline. Do you depend? I, I like going in those clubs, don't you? If no. you can? You don't go in? No, I, I mean, if, if I'm so, traveling, you can't get a seat the Davos at the gate. the only time I go in. You can't get a seat at the gate, really. There's too many people around. And if you have an... If don't I'm you get... If I'm traveling with everybody, it's a zoo anyway. Don't you get there get early, though, and have like an hour and a half? Uh, depends. Sometimes I, 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 I try and get there early, but then it's also a mess. To get, if you're traveling with family to try and get through, to get through some of these things, it's like trying to get everybody snacks at the last minute, make sure everybody has something they want to get on. Not usually enough time to go hang out. I would out let you while. guess why, why I like those clubs so much, but I don't think you could get it. It's the only time, I'm going to tell you, it's the only time I get to eat cold cereal. We never have really? it. Yeah. That's the, that's the draw? Frosted Flakes, Lucky Charms. You are Charms. a simple man. Like I don't like Seinfeld. Yeah. You remember? <laughs> they love cereal. Yeah. He used to eat it for dinner. Yeah. You are a simple man. Honey Nut Cheerios. I, we have Honey Nut Cheerios at home. Yeah, Fruit Loops. No. Cold milk. Not much better. And granola. We have granola at home, too. Arby's is facing a new class action lawsuit uh, claiming that the roast beef sandwich chain misleads the public about how much meat is contained in each sandwich. Well, what is that stuff? No, they're just saying that it, this, is, this is the latest series of these class action things where they say it's not as big as you thought said it was. But it's, it's also not about the quality of the meat itself. The court right, filing. Show me ele- any advertisement that actually <laughs> the product looks like it well, does I'd like to life. know if it's not roast beef. No, it's roast The court filing alleges that, I haven't been in a while, that Arby's sandwiches contain about half the meat. They're talking quantity, not quality. Advertised in its marketing materials. We just said it was quality, too. And the brand intentionally portrays the sandwiches as being larger than they are. 
It's just the latest in a series of lawsuits against fast food companies, including Burger King, Taco Bell. Now, hold on there. Uh, alleging that the menu items that served are not the same as those uh, in the advertisements. Remember that horrible Taco Bell? Uh, we used to have David Novak on when he was running the, the rats. Thing. No, they just said it was like mystery meat. They oh. pretended it was like, you know, had like hardly any meat content in it. Which brings us back to the great <laughs> first vacation. Remember the first vacation? A vacation in the movie? Yep, Hamburger Helper. Geez, Eddie, there's no ground beef here, just Hamburger Helper. Goes, yep, That's, uh, they really don't need the meat. And <laughs> they didn't have the money. It was sad, actually. They were out, um, you remember that? Have you seen that one? I, I you know who watches the show? I scene. Yeah, I who's that? Cousin Eddie. The legend, Randy Quaid. I don't remember, I'm, I remember the movie, but I don't remember the scene. And I don't think he minds being, I mean, that is such an iconic character. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, Al Bundy's still role. mad that he's Al Bundy, you know. But I, think, I think he's fine with his modern family role. Yeah, well, he yeah. totally changed. He became sort of a happening dude instead yeah. of a shoe set. Shoe betcha. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the Washington party the tech industry really wanted to go to. A one-of-a-kind forum bringing the titans of industry to the halls of Congress. Senator Todd Young joins us. We found that all the individuals from labor to civil rights groups, they all think that there's an appropriate role for government. And most of them are of the opinion that we're going to have to adopt a light-touch approach to regulation. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer. So yesterday, Mr. Musk went to Washington. Elon, what did you say to the senator, sir? Elon, what did you say? And Mr. Gates, Mr. Zuckerberg. How did it go? Control room Zuckerberg now. Many of the biggest names in the technology industry descended on the Capitol for an artificial intelligence forum organized by New York Senator Chuck Schumer and other lawmakers. Among the attendees, the CEOs of Alphabet, Microsoft, IBM, and NVIDIA joined labor and civil rights experts for a -a one-of-a-kind meeting to educate lawmakers on AI and discuss some of the complicated choices Congress may need to make to regulate this emerging technology. More than 60 senators attended the closed-door meeting. This was not a traditional hearing in front of the cameras. And a few had issues with that format. Here's what Senator Josh Hawley told CNBC earlier this week. I just think that this needs to be done in public, and I'm not interested in being a cheerleader, directly or indirectly, for the tech industry. I mean, they can cheerlead for themselves, but I think this idea that they we should privilege somehow their views... I just don't buy that at all. So I don't don't like this whole sort of cocktail hour behind closed doors, all let's all be buddies. Those in the room said there were lively debates on whether AI models should be open sourced. Many in the tech world have argued for ensuring software is publicly accessible to help developers work more rapidly. So there were some big ideas discussed. Here's what Elon Musk. Talk to CNBC for a second, live on TV. Um, Sure. I mean, just for for a second here. What was Um, your message to the Senate? Told CNBC after the meeting. I think it was, it was, it was very um, civilized discussion, actually, among um, some of the smartest people in the world. So uh, I thought it was, uh, Senator Schumer did, did a great uh, service to humanity here. I think, we'll, um, I think something good will come of this. this I think this, this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. The organizer, Senator Chuck Schumer, following the session, said that he asked everyone in the room if they believe government needs to play a role in regulating AI. And every single person raised their hands. 
even though they had diverse views. So that gives us a message here that we have to try to act, as difficult as the process may be. Yesterday on CNBC's Last Call, Senator Ted Cruz, who also attended the meeting, shared a more skeptical view of Congress's ability to effectively regulate this emerging technology. Congress doesn't know what it's doing when, with regard to AI. I mean, th th this is a body where, you know, it seems like the median age is about 106. This is not a tech-savvy body. This is a body where one of my colleagues a few years ago referred to the Internet as a system of tubes. I'll hand it off here to Andrew Ross Sorkin, who spoke today to yet another senator, one of the moderators of yesterday's AI forum, Todd Young, Republican of Indiana. So I, I think the big question was, or is, what did you learn? What was, the, what was the one thing that you think you took away from this that you think you didn't understand before? Well, I think most fundamentally, we found that all the individuals you mentioned and everyone else present, uh, from uh, labor to uh, civil rights groups, they all think that there's an appropriate role for government, and most of them are of the opinion that we're going to have to adopt a light-touch approach to regulation uh, to make sure that, on one hand, we address any concerns or risks that people have about the continued uh, enablement of society through artificial intelligence, but also want to make sure the United States of America leads the way so that our values ultimately are embedded within this technology, not the values of anyone else who might, right. uh, you know, leap ahead of us, say, the Chinese Communist Party. Senator, you use the phrase light touch regulation. Uh, when we've heard from uh, folks like Sam Altman, uh, who started OpenAI, um, he hasn't used that phrase exactly. And, and a number of uh, folks that are actually in the industry have frankly called quite openly and publicly for regulation of this um, what do you think the distinction is between that and what you're saying? You know, I'm not sure there is uh, a really great distinction. I would just emphasize we want to focus on use case by use case and then uh, assess the need to regulate accordingly. So, uh, you know, as, as it relates to using artificial intelligence technology to try and design uh, a, a new toxin or, or a, uh, a new chemical substance, that, that should be highly regulated because we know there's a, a large risk that someone out there, some bad actors, trying, will develop a toxin that could hurt others. Right. If instead someone's using artificial intelligence to uh, you know, design new toys, uh, a much lower regulation probably would uh, you know, be expected right. of that. So um, I, I think there's probably alignment, but there will ultimately be some disagreement about uh, how many individuals we need to put on the beat, uh, what sort of qualifications they should have, and most importantly, what sort of rules we're going to set uh, here in Washington uh, as we continue to develop artificial intelligence technologies and then deploy them to the world. Senator, uh, there were some questions asked yesterday about whether this meeting should have been or could have been um, done in a more transparent way, meaning it would be an open meeting that would have been uh, made public to the media and therefore would have been made public uh, to uh, the citizens of, of the country. Do you think you could have done that? Do you think you would have been, you could have gotten whatever information you got um, in a private setting? Do you think you could have got that in a public setting? Well, first, let me say that's a fair concern. 
I, I think it's really important to have public hearings and, and uh, shine a lot of light into uh, these sorts of conversations. But I do feel like uh, having this forum, at least initially as, as members of, of the U.S. Senate, are in an information gathering stage, which we are, uh, it was important to have unguarded uh, conversations. And we heard things uh, from a number of individuals that I don't think we would have uh, perhaps heard in a more public setting. We heard about the labor market disruptions that could happen associated with this technology. We heard about all the amazing upsides. I do want to emphasize that. Uh, but uh, we heard about some of the national security implications. So you just tend to have a lot more candid conversation. And during this information gathering stage, I think that's appropriate. You know, the, the most private meetings we have here on Capitol Hill on an ongoing basis are individual meetings with individual tech executives and, and what have you. So absent this sort of consultative forum, we would have still right. had those meetings. Uh, and ultimately, I want to emphasize, it is the intent of Senator Schumer, myself and others, to go through a, a bipartisan process of regular order, meaning using right. the committees of jurisdiction and uh, ultimately you know, having uh, the public uh, watch all those proceedings uh, in coming months. Can you speak specifically to this? Um, one of the reasons that Elon Musk has said that he's gotten into the generative AI business effectively is that he's concerned that a number of uh, the leading generative AI uh, companies and operators are doing it A, for profit, and B, won't do it in a way that is completely open, and that that is something that he believes for humanity is necessary. Um, after listening to this debate yesterday, to some degree, I imagine, where do you land? I think we need both open source models and more proprietary closed source models. One of the things we find about proprietary models is, is even though they may be more secure, uh, there are clever actors out there who, who can hack the systems and, and figure out uh, how to make uh, their code uh, more visible to, uh, to themselves and, and, and effectively open source. Uh, it's also worth noting that if you have an open source system, that does democratize artificial intelligence. We want that to happen. Uh, it democratizes use and development, but it also makes it easier for any rank and file bad actor uh, to use right. the, these amazing tools, which are gonna increase our productivity right. between 30 and 50%, we had heard, uh, uh, by, right. by people who will use them right. to bad ends. So it's a balance, and mm -hmm. I think the real key is making sure the United States in uh, our companies and innovators and investors stay ahead of those in the rest of the world uh, so that we have, we have the innovations to counter any bad effects of the next right. successive wave of AI. Senator, uh, Senator Young, I want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning and uh, we look forward to talking to you again as I know you will be following this issue very, very closely. Next on Squawk Pod, leadership expert Susie Welch on what Generation Z, Americans just starting their careers or about to, really want. They have a very tamped down, diminished American dream, and who's to say it's wrong? Am I wrong to have more hope for Gen Z than maybe some of the other named generations? You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Some optimistic news. Susie Welch is here. Um, we're going to talk about it. Older Americans might have counted Gen Z out. Gen Z is counting themselves in. Gallup's latest survey revealing that 76% of Generation Z feels optimistic about their future, but only 44% feel prepared for that future. We're going to talk about the distinction in just a second. 
And while they may feel hopeful, adult optimism for younger generations has hit a three-decade low. Here to break down what this all means is NYU Stern School of Business professor Susie Welch. What is going on here? I think we all have this expectation that, you know, our kids are going to have a harder time than we had. But they feel so much better about the situation. Yeah, the, you know, the when I first read about these results, I thought, well, the uh, death of Gen Z has been greatly exaggerated, right? Because our generation, and the statistics, the Gallup poll really shows this, our generation is sort of that they're dead to us. They're, they're over. They're, they're, they're entitled. They're lazy. They, 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 they don't know how to work. But Gen Z has, is filled with hope and optimism for themselves. These numbers are very high because there's this 76% that says, I'm very optimistic about the future. 85% believe they'll achieve the goals that they set out for themselves. And meanwhile, older, the general population, which is us, people who are not Gen Z, say, forget it, they're never going to achieve anything. Okay, but who's right? <clears throat> well, uh, we, shall, we shall find out. I actually believe in Gen Z. I think that they, they want to know how to, um, uh, to, to achieve. They want to learn more. I think they want a different future than we wanted, and that might be the source of some of the frustration. When, they, when the poll asked them, what is your dream? You know, what's your American dream? They said something that's kind of, I think, a little bit startling to our generation. They said, we want to make enough money to live comfortably. Now, that on its face sounds like an okay goal. I want to, I want to make enough money to live comfortably. But when their word comfortably is not about financial security, it's about anxiety. Um, if you look deeper into the results, right? They want, they'll do anything to avoid anxiety. They want to have lives that are anxiety-free. And that's why we saw quiet quitting, right. lazy girl jobs, fun employment, all of those trends. And, and you think if this poll was taken of, of a generation or two back, or three back, yeah. the answer would have been not just, I want to be comfortable, yes. but I want to do better than my parents? Yes, absolutely. Because I that, mean, to me, was what I thought was the American yes. dream. That's right. They've, they have a very tamped down, diminished American dream. And who's to say it's wrong? Maybe that uh, it's, they, but what we see, what the implications for business are, is that they are moving away from work and business being the source of their uh, happiness and self-actualization and identity. I can't they just, say yeah. I'm shocked or surprised. I mean, they grew up with the Great Recession, mm. followed by COVID and the pandemic and crazy lockdowns. Yes. And, uh, and their view of the future is quite can be quite nihilistic. Right. If you if you look at some of those things, if you grew up and watched your parents get in trouble during the Great Recession, right. you think right. I'm not going to put myself through the things my parents did and sacrifice all those things That's for right. for what for, for nothing for the man. The they don't want to do it. Am I wrong to have more hope for Gen Z than? Maybe some of the other named generations. I think. No, I don't. I have a lot of hope for them because they have one really beautiful thing. But they're about different, them. aren't they? They're different, they are different. Than, the, than the, the you know the hoverboard generation, yes. whatever the hell they live in their parents' I, basement. Yeah, no, I actually they are uh, when in, at least in my classroom, my experience, and I talk to a lot of people right. from Gen Z. They have, they want to work very very. Yeah. They want to have meaningful lives, okay? So that's not actually, just apps on their iPhone. No, they want to like they actually like more in real life uh, communication than previous generations. I have a lot of hope for them, actually. I, I know that's okay. So let, but let me ask you this: We're we've been talking about the UAW this morning yeah. with the auto union. Uh, mm -hmm. We've now seen a sort of union movement with UPS across across the country. It's mm -hmm. happening broadly. Yeah. How does that play into this? I think that Gen Z would be more likely to want to be unionized than previous generations. That they, because they don't um, trust institutions, I mean, and their trust institutions all time low, because they don't trust, they're not going to trust their boss to the say. The union's not an institution? That's well, they like, don't know that yet, right? They, they see the. They're some of the worst the, the, well, the, the management so, at the I, union. Okay, they are going to pick management as being the institution, the man, the boss, and they, I think they'd be more likely to unionize because they don't see work, they don't see, okay, if I unionize, it's going to, 
hurt my upward traje trajectory. It's going to take right. me out of management because they don't have long-term views about how long but they're going to stay at a company. I'm, I'm just curious about the, the kids who are in your class. Yeah. How entrepreneurial do you think they are okay. relative to what you might have seen a decade ago right. or two decades ago? So um, I think, you know, I have an interesting slice because I've got very shiny, bright, bright, you know, MBAs. Yes. So I think they're not the typical um, Gen Z. They should they're, be a little more entrepreneurial. They're, let's hope. Very, they're extremely entrepreneurial. But there's two pieces of it. One is that they love the sort of entrepreneurial life, but the other part of it is they don't want to work for somebody else because somebody else then can control your lifestyle or can in introduce anxiety into your life. So part of the lure of being, and of course, having been an entrepreneur myself, nothing right. is more anxiety provoking than being an entrepreneur um, and, and working for yourself because you're, you know. Okay, so how has the curriculum then, either what you teach or your colleagues teach, changed yeah. or changing? As I think a function that, of all this. I, I have to say, at least at NYU, keep up very much. There's lots of classes on entrepreneurship. I started uh, a year ago teaching a class called Becoming You, which is about the journey of discovering what you should do with your life. And when we put it out there, we didn't know how people were going to respond. Um, and it ended up that there, were, uh, there was a strong desire for people in this generation to figure out who they were standing still so right. that they could figure out what they were going to do when they took their next step forward. We almost as a generation never looked at what we, were, what we wanted while we were standing still. It was just go, go, go. Right. Then we sort of got to that you know, stage in our life where we said, what is this beautiful house? My God, what have I done? You know, like the talking right. head song. And we said, wait, who am I? and had our midlife crisis. But they would like to have that midlife crisis Are you surprised first. that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and Blackstone, well now Blackstone, but they, they wouldn't have been on this list 20 years ago, you know, still have you know, thousands of applicants every year for what are effectively training jobs. Right. Before they, I mean, is that? There's always gonna be this group of, 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 of high achieving kids who are coming out of the you know, top schools that are gonna be feeding um, Goldman Sachs and Bain right. and McKinsey. There, there's always gonna be that conveyor belt. But then there's the whole large group of students underneath that of young people coming up who are having a lot of alternative versions of the future which include a sort of a serial careers. Work, take time off. Work, take time off. Work, we never, I never thought of it that okay. way. So final question, yeah. as an employer, what yeah. do you think you would do about this sort of shifting wind? Well, I think with all of Gen Z, with all employers, I mean, I think that what I first experienced was a lot of frustration coming from employers saying, you know, how do we manage these kids? And I think they've come to learn from experience that like all other generations, they just want to be seen and heard and you've got to engage in conversation, hear about their values. And they want to be, at least according to this Gallup research, they want to be taught how to function in the world. They feel like school has not met them there. And right. they, you know, you, if you say to them, let me tell you how to live, they're actually quite open to it. I would say that was the same when I was in school too. You know. That you didn't? Well, you get out of college, are you really prepared to do anything? It's the stuff you do on the job. If, right. if you had a job in college, that, the, to me, that was the more of the training that I but took But didn't you feel, you didn't feel when you were in school, I want to learn how to get a job, whereas the survey shows that people, Gen Z students are saying, I want school to teach me how to get a job, almost like apprenticeship-like, almost like yeah. very big throwback. Right. Probably a useful turn. Yeah. yeah. Susie Wells, thank you. Thank you for having that's me. A, that's optimistic, right? It's sort of, it it's like optimistic, but not. <laughs> but maybe we're, we're measuring it the wrong way. We wanted to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Well, Back in the maybe you did, Joe, 70s, but I would say yeah. that. Well, everybody in the 70s But I don't think that Gen Z does not want to tune in but then we, and drop you, out. They don't. That, that's what we talked about before we started, that yeah. we all feel that way when we're in college, and then a lot of us turn into who we become, and I'm hoping that for the millennials eventually and, and Gen Z. Eventually. I think that we were more willing to take on anxiety and more willing to take on the trade-offs they don't want to take. Really? By comparison. Yeah. Well, I, life I, is I, about 
challenges, so there's going to be some anxiety. I know. Well, Billie Jean King, pressure's a privilege, baby. Yeah, that's a great line. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Izzy. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis and interviews from our TV show right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.